Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. So today, we are going to look at Romans chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 11. This is page 942 in the Pew Bible. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him dependently in prayer. O God, you instruct us by your holy scriptures, and we urge you by your grace to enlighten our minds, cleanse our hearts, that reading, hearing, meditating upon them, we may rightly understand and heartily embrace the things you have revealed in them. Give efficacy to the reading of the gospel in your word. And that through the operation of the Holy Spirit, this holy seed may be received in our hearts as into good ground. And that we may not only hear your word, but keep it. Living in conformity with your precepts and always for your glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Theologian D.A. Carson writes this, If people believe in God at all today, the overwhelming majority hold that this God, however he, she, or it may be understood, is a loving being. But, Carson explains, that is what makes the task of Christian witness so daunting. For this widely disseminated belief in the love of God is set increasing frequency in some matrix other than biblical theology. The result is that when informed Christians talk about the love of God, they mean something very different from what is meant in the surrounding culture. To Carson's point, perhaps... You, like me, have encountered the wrath of love. Well, that is worldly love. I mean, for example, should you dare to say something about God's love for fidelity within the marriage of one man and one woman for life and God's hatred for sexual immorality and what our kind of variety might be popular at this moment in our culture, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get labeled 
unloving, maybe even a hater, as well as your God? And should you try to explain the biblical understanding of God's love, which I might add is going to take longer than a news media soundbite, it's going to take a little bit of time to develop it, you're going to be met, met with disbelief, you might even be met with hostility. Because to describe the love of God biblically requires also a discussion of His sovereignty, a discussion of His holiness. It might even be a discussion about His wrath, His attributes that the world considers to be incongruent or antagonistic to the definition of love. This, of course, should come as no surprise to the Christian. We live in a fallen world that would fashion God's image, rather God in their image, would therefore deny the very one who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But my concern this morning is not with the world. My concern this morning is not with our surrounding culture. My concern is you and me. That our inner dictionary is being populated more by the world than God's Word. Has your definition of God's love become, as D.A. Carson puts it, sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized? Sounds like the Hallmark Channel at Christmas, right? Not that I know anything about that. But J.I. Packer rightly gives this caution. Listen carefully to what Packer says. He says, Our understanding of the love of God must be limited by what the Bible's homiletical flowings of thought actually yield. Sentimental ideas of His love as an indulgent, Benevolent softness, divorced from moral standards and concerns, must therefore be ruled out from the start. God's love, Packer says, is a holy love. The God whom Jesus made known is not a God who is indifferent to moral distinctions, but a God who loves righteousness and hates iniquity. A God whose ideal for His children is that they should be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. We need a biblical understanding of love because we are inundated with the world's version, even to the point that now I encounter Christians who will have a definition that is more formed by the world and our culture around us than the Bible. That's a new thing that I've encountered. And so when we look at the Bible, just briefly, we see, and this is just general, but we see that God's love is expressed in at least five ways. There is the love of God the Father for God the Son, and God the Son for God the Father. We might express it as an intra-Trinitarian love between the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. There is the love of God over what He has made. We might think of this as a benevolent providence for creation. There is the love of God toward this fallen world and a love for the lost. There is the love of God specifically for His elect, an exclusive and efficacious love for His eternally chosen ones. And finally, there is the love of God for the obedience of His children. And with each of those, and I could have elaborated more, but there are distinctions. We could say there are distinctions in the love of God. Distinctions that we cannot ignore, nor can we elevate one over the other. And each contribute to a right understanding of what God's love is. What love truly is. Because the source of love is God Himself. In fact, the testimony of Scripture is God is love. Yes, God loves, but most importantly, He is love. It is a present tense description of love's origin. Of love's source. Just as all truth is God's truth, all love, true love, is God's love. It is from Him, the Apostle John says. Calvin expressed it this way. He said, God is the fountain of love. He is its source and out of Him flows. And so if there is true love, it is God's love. It is from Him as the fountain of it. And to know what love is then, we need to look to Him. Consider, for example, the passage that we looked at today here in the fifth chapter of Romans in which Paul explains that God shows, or it could be translated, God demonstrates His love for us in our redemption. That is, we see in our passage today what love is specifically in considering what God in Christ has done for us. Now, as we look at this passage today, let me be clear. I'm not at all saying this is an exhaustive study of what the love of God is. But what I am saying is, is that as we look at this passage, and as the passage specifically says, God shows or God demonstrates, then it's important for us to look at what we see here about God's love. And I would argue to you that there are four ways in this passage, at least, that we see how God shows His love to us. That is, He gives that is, He justifies, that is, He saves, that is, He reconciles. And so those are the four things that I want to draw your attention to today. Firstly, God gives. And the tangible expression, you've probably already been thinking this in your mind, and those of us that have that oft-quoted verse memorized, you're thinking John 3.16. And good job, that's what I'm thinking too. Because God gives, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's gift to the world. In other words, what John is saying is, it was not just a gift for the Jewish people, though Jesus was born a Jew, and so also the Jewish Messiah. 
But God gave Jesus is not just a gift for one people group or the Jewish race, but the human race for whoever believes in the Son of God. God's gift was not a response to righteous works, not wages earned, but it was a gift bestowed by grace. It was given not to the strong, but the weak. It was given not to the godly, but the ungodly. Love for the unlovable. To die for someone, which is the example that Paul gives, to die for someone is the ultimate expression for love. Which leads to the question, who would you die for? Paul reads our mind, right? He says, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. And so when I thought about this, I thought, would, would I die for my family? Yes. Would I die for my best friend? Next question. Would I die, <laughs> would I die for my church family? Uh, yes. Would I die for someone who hates my guts, wishes I were dead, and wants nothing to do with me other than to shame and disgrace me? I want, as a pastor, I want to say yes, because I'm supposed to. But I'm thinking it's a big, fat no. And yet, when you think about this, that's what God in Christ did. That's what we were. We were not the friend. We were the enemy of God. Apart from Christ, you see, our sin rendered us repeat offenders of the perfect standard of God's holiness. Our due was death. But God shows His love for us. And that while we were enemies, God the Father gave His Son while we were still sinners, God the Son died for us. And so God's love for the world was not mere sentiment, but sacrifice. He gave His one and only Son to suffer and die. The Apostle John puts it this way, He is the propitiation for our sins. That is, He is our atoning sacrifice. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Son was given as an atoning sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God for sin. Not only for the Jew, but for the Gentile. Not only for you, but for me as well. Not for everyone without condition, but for all who repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so through God's gift, though you and I deserve death, we receive eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The second thing I want us to look at is God justifies. God justifies. That God gave His only Son in love does not mean that He accepts our sin. And then this is really the biggest thing that most of us encounter, isn't it? The idea that if God is a loving God, ergo, He accepts whatever your definition of love might be. 
But crack the Bible, and what we find is God hates sin. So that's a big problem with that wrong understanding of what love is. God's love is in direct opposition to sin. He is offended by sin, finds the sinner guilty, and is storing up his wrath for punishment. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to figure out. That's the testimony of the Bible. Therefore, if God is love, and He is, then His love requires that sin be dealt with according to His justice. Not according to your rules, nor mine, that God deals with sin according to His perfect standard of justice. But when the world thinks of love, the holiness of God is considered contrary to it. Now, I love the way that R.C. Sproul puts this. You've heard this quote, I'm sure, before. But Sproul says this, There's only one attribute of God that is ever raised to the third degree of repetition in Scripture. There's only one characteristic of Almighty God that is communicated in the superlative degree. From the mouths of angels, where the Bible doesn't simply say that God is holy, or even that He's holy, holy, but that He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible doesn't say that God is mercy, 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 or love, 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 or justice, 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 or wrath, 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 but that He is holy, holy, holy. Suppose says this is a dimension of God that consumes His very essence. I think he's right. The testimony of both the Old and New Testament is this verse. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But apart from Christ, holiness is an impossibility for us all, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, we must be justified as righteous, not by our works, but by God's grace through faith. Paul explains it this way, pointing back to the third chapter of Romans. He says, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The gift that God gives in His Son makes Him, as the Reformer said, both the just and the justifier. That's a good thing to remember. God is both the just and the justifier of sinners who believe in Him. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that he who is holy, holy, holy overlooks or dismisses sin. Let me be clear. Our sin is not ignored in Christ. <laughs> As if to believe in Christ and Jesus is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to pass on that one. You know, or, whew, John, that was a biggie. I'm not sure there's enough grace for that one, said the Lord Jesus Christ. Never. As John Stott explains it this way, I think this is a beautiful summary. 
Far from condoning sin, His love has found a way to expose it because He is light and to consume it because He is fire without destroying the sinner, but rather saving him. Yeah. yeah that, that's it. That's the concept. This God, what God does in the sacrifice of His Son is what God does with our sin. For while, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. In Christ Jesus, you are righteous. But not just righteous from a personal or people, or worldly, or cultural standard. The standard of God is perfection. And so in Christ, we have the righteousness of God. We the guilty stand in the perfect righteousness of Christ before God, justified, as our passage says, by His blood. Third thing I want us to look at is that God saves. God saves. And you may say, isn't that what you've been talking about all along? (laughs) I want to make this distinction here. And that God saves. The love of God does not let us continue in our sin, but saves us from our sin. That's an important distinction. The love of God does not let us continue in our sin, but saves us from it. See, I need to be saved from my sin? Oh, yeah. The love of God does not leave us in sin's consequences, but saves us from those consequences. The love of God does not leave us to what our sin deserves, but He saves us from perishing. Thank God, God loves me differently than the world does. Because if I were loved by God the way that the world loves, I would be left in my sin. I would be left to the consequences of my sin. And I would be left to the eternal wrath of God. And God doesn't love that way. I mean, that's worthy of rejoicing, as the last verse says in our passage today, in itself. That God loves me as only God can love me. For those who continue in their sins, they will be given over to them. For those left to the consequences of their sin, they will suffer for it. To those left in their sin, they will receive not love, but judgment. But God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows His love for us that we shall be saved by Him from the wrath of God. We don't save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. But we are saved by Him. Our salvation then is not a response to a profession of faith. Our salvation is, in fact, bestowed upon us by the grace of God. In fact, and when Paul was writing to, the Timothy, to Timothy, he says, Do you want to know when this started? Your salvation? 
It started before the ages began. Say what? Before the ages began, he told Timothy. In fact, here's the way that Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 1. He said, before the foundation of the world, mighty long time ago, in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. (laughs) And what God the Father ordained, God the Son accomplished. And what God the Son accomplished, God the Holy Spirit applies to us by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is in Christ alone that we are saved. Fourthly, God reconciles. To be reconciled to God means we enjoy fellowship with God without condemnation. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We who are once enemies, think about this, we who were once enemies are now children. In my mind, the way this would work, which should scare you a little bit, in my mind, the way this would work is that there is the Son of God, and then there, is the, there are those whom He has saved, and we're the second class. We're the B team. Christ is varsity, right? And we're sort of, you know, my, my, guy, get you, my athletic talent growing up. Let's not put him in. Let's keep him on the bench. I'm on the bench. Jesus is the varsity team. That's the way I think that it ought to work. But Scripture says that's not how it works. That in God's love, He has reconciled us as children. We're on the varsity team. And we're involved as joint heirs with Christ. John puts it this way. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And then he adds, and so we are. And so we are. We who are once deserving of death. And my prayers and your prayers, we cry, Abba, Father, in Christ alone. We who are once deserving of His wrath are now joint heirs of the kingdom. Such is the love of God shown most generously to the most undeserving. Right? The love of God then reconciles us as only He can. He give in His giving, in His justifying, in His saving, in His reconciling, not for the sake of the sinner, but for the Savior. Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, Peter says, that He might bring us to God. A sinner like me, brought to the holy God. That's what God in Christ has done. He brings us to God, and this He has accomplished, not by accepting our sin, not by saying, well, I'm just going to overlook that sin. No, instead, by substituting the atoning death of His Son for it. Not by allowing you and me to just wallow in our sin and our debauchery, but instead what He does, for Christ's sake, He reconciles us, bringing us near to God as His own children. Heaven's a family reunion, right? (laughs) 
In Christ, Paul writes, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, through the cross. And so as our passage concludes, we rejoice. We rejoice not only because we have been saved from the wrath of God. That's worthy of rejoicing in itself. But also because we are reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice because we are now, today, reconciled to the lover of our soul. No one knows you better And all of the things that you don't want any of the rest of us to know about you, God knows. And He loves you the most. In fact, He who knows you best loves you most. We rejoice today because the one who loves us is the one who shows His love to us. Even when we were sinners. And today we too may share the love of God with a world that does not know this love. If we would love with the love of God, then for Christmas, let us give the gift of the gospel. Let us give the gift of the gospel. If we would love with the love of God, we will point the weak, we will point the ungodly, We will point the enemy of God, not to our biases, not to our opinions, not to our political affiliations, not to push them aside, not to insult them, not to shame them on social media and other places. We'll point them to Christ. We'll point them to Christ because He loves the unlovable. Me and you. And if we would love with the love of God, then let us call sin, sin. And not call sin, love. But tell the one who loves us. Tell of the one who loves us. Herein is the love of God. That He does not accept your sin, but He has sent a Savior. And in Him, in Him, He makes a sinner a saint. If we would love with the love of God, then let us not accept sin in ourselves, but let us mortify it. Let us crucify it. Let us put it to death. Because a righteous life tells the world whom you love most. And if we would love with the love of God, then let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. May it be so. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, how great is your love. It is difficult for us as humans, to describe it. But as we look to Scripture, you have shown us over and over again the love that you have for us. And we thank you that in love you sent your only Son to suffer, to die, but also to be resurrected from the dead 
ascend to your right hand, who intercedes for us as only he can do. And we pray that we too, in Christ, would show this love to a lost and dying world, the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ, expressing the love that you have shown to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fortsmouth, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org. Thank you.